Listeners, readers, welcome back. This is The Fox Page, and this is part two, lecture chunk number two of three if, uh, of Nancy Mitford's incredible The Pursuit of Love. If you have not listened to the first chunk, you might wanna do that. Also, quick note, the second and third installments of all of these lectures, we will be talking about important plot points. I try to avoid any spoilers in the first one, but in the second and third, I just gotta sometimes dive in. I gotta talk about the whole the whole piece here. Uh, today, we will be talking about this really effective narrative stance. We'll be talking about the dialogue and how it is one of the strongest points of her prose. And then we're gonna talk about pacing. Really, this, this book is a masterclass of all three of these. Uh, all three of these sort of literary uh, structures. So the narrator in this case is known as a first person peripheral narrator. So it, it's essentially someone who's telling the story from their first person perspective. So it's I did this and I did that and I went to Alcon Lee and we went to, we being the plural of the first person, we went to the ball and then we went to London and whatnot. Um, but, but when it's a first person peripheral, it simply means that it's kind of a sidekick character and not the main protagonist herself. In this case, obviously the main protagonist is, uh, main protagonist, by the way, redundant. The protagonist here, her name is Linda. So we have Fanny, the cousin sidekick. It's, it, and this is one of, I think the best, uh, you know, sort of examples of this. The classic example of this kind of narrator is Nick Carraway from The Great Gatsby. So, um, you know, we have Jay Gatsby and we have all of this information we need to sort of suss out about him. He's very enigmatic. Linda Radlett, not so enigmatic, but in order to get this, um, you know, this vision of this eccentric household, we do need a narrator who is, is both close enough to understand what's up, but is also um, has a little bit of objectivity. Okay, we're gonna dive in and take a look at the ways that Nancy Mitford wields this incredible device. So we're gonna look at page seven. We have from Fanny this kind of, this description of this photograph, but then how she used to spend the holidays always at the, um, you know, with the Radlets. So up at the top of page seven. But the Christmas I remember most clearly of all was when I was 14 and Aunt Emily became engaged. Aunt Emily was Aunt Sadie's sister and she had brought me up from babyhood, my own mother, their youngest sister, having felt herself too beautiful and too gay to be burdened with a child at the age of 19. Which is so funny to me because it's you have this incredible slippage here, and this is a little bit of this unconventional grammar that is used by Nancy Mitford. It, again, I like to think she didn't have like a, you know, she wasn't um, diagramming sentences the way that, that I was back in the day. Loved diagramming sentences that and um, geometrical proofs, you know, so orderly, although I'm not really that orderly. But um, you have this, this slippage that happens because this is, this is not conventional grammar. So when she says, um, brought me up from babyhood, comma, my own mother, it, it sounds that it's a misplaced modifier that makes uh, Aunt, it makes um, Aunt Emily into my mother. So there's this really cool, again, slippage in this case is just a misplaced modifier. But if you're reading it as the reader, you have to, you, your first instinct, which is turns out to be a mistake, but grammatically you're reading it correctly. You think my mother is referring back to uh, Aunt Emily because in many ways, Aunt Emily, and she says this, Fanny admits this you know, happily, Aunt Emily is much more of a mother to her than her mother could have been. I, I think it's funny. I don't even know if we ever know the Bolter's name. Maybe we're going to find out here. My terrible memory is not not accessing 
the Volter's name. And, and in fact, it's, it's, I think, very telling that I can't remember the name of the boy in the family and I can't remember the name of the Volter because she is very much just the Volter. Uh, but I love this idea, too, of their youngest sister having felt herself too beautiful and too gay to be burdened uh, with a child at the age of 19. So there's this idea of, of that's totally fine. Like if you're too beautiful and you're having way too much fun, you know, as a young society person, you happen to get pregnant and have a baby at 19, then, you know, you, you, you by all means continue on with your life. So this is one of these first indications of, of maternity as being a bit fraught. Um, and then we're going to zip down to the bottom here of the, of the same paragraph. Aunt Emily was never glamorous, but she was always my mother and I loved her. So we have this very straightforward um, situating of, Emily, of, of Fanny right from the start. Um, we're now going to move to page 13. We're going to look right at the sort of down here in the middle of the page on 13. Um, so this is a, a, these are very good examples of how um, this objectivity allows her at times to really dig into scenes. For example, when she's telling us about this first holiday and different kind of specific things that happened. But then it also allows her to sort of um, pull the lens back of it and make big statements. You know, this is page 13. It's relatively early in the novel that really um, elucidate for us who the, who the Radlets are, what they're all about. The Radlets were always either on a peak of happiness or drowning in black waters of despair. Their emotions were on no ordinary plane. They loved or they loathed, they laughed or they cried. They lived in a world of superlatives. So that, by the way, is all one sentence. It's just a bunch of commas. I mean, talk about a run on. But it's so beautiful. I mean, it's 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 very it's kind of this breathless storytelling, and 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 the 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 prose just moves right along in large part because there are no periods. You know, you don't come to a full stop ever. So, but you have not only do you have this kind of um, this this beautiful sort of urgency in the prose grammatically, but you also have right away this um, th this like jumbling together of all of these kind of black and white kind of things, you know, they're either, and it, the first description is so good, on a peak of happiness or drowning in black waters of despair. I mean, this is a very kind of overwrought, overdone uh, metaphor here, but it's perfect. I mean, it's, it's exactly what it should be. Uh, and then down a little bit lower here, part B in my notes, had they been poor children, they would probably have been removed from their roaring, raging, whacking papa and sent to an approved home. Or indeed, he himself would have been removed from them and sent to prison for refusing to educate them. Nature, however, provides her own remedies. And no doubt the Radlets had enough of Uncle Matthew in them to enable them to weather the storms in which ordinary children like me would have lost their nerve completely. So again, we have this very nice distance and she's saying, you know, she's just an ordinary person, but, but these people were truly exceptional. And um, they are, I mean, criticisms are, are leveled at Nancy Mitford and the entire Mitford family. One of them is, is being a little bit sort of naive and, and a little insouciant about politics, it, you know, a little, a little just kind of light in terms of, of, of how they're thinking about their politics. But, but also they are kind of extraordinary in the sense that they're very resilient. And the, the, this, the upbringing, you know, at least as far as we see it here, you can imagine the kind of resilience. And we also do see many instances of Fanny just kind of dissolving, you know, just not being able to stand up to her uncle Matthew. 
I, I think it's also excellent that she repeats the word whacking here. Again, it's such a distinctive verb and it's such a good one. And we see it right in the beginning, and, it, you know, and, we, and it's a, sort of a signal that we're going to have a lot of this kind of violence. And, and it's like this excellent trio of words. Um, they, they might have been removed from their roaring, raging, whacking papa. It's, it's so, you can almost hear this roaring, raging, whacking papa. And the roaring and raging is this nice kind of, you know, you have a bunch of liquids, the R's are liquid sounds, um, and the gerunds. You have this kind of moving along, this roaring, raging, and then whacking. You have this very nice kind of, um, it, it's a glottal stop. You have this nice percussive whacking kind of thing. So you can almost see him kind of, you know, chasing them or something. And I mean, we should, take relatively seriously the fact that that there was some corporal punishment being leveled. But I think that was probably also somewhat typical of the times. And again, it, it seems to be balanced by um, by some some pretty, uh, you know, pretty good sense of perspective and, and some levity that these children have adopted. OK, then we're going to look at um, page 50. So this was an interesting moment. This um, speaking of unconventional grammar on page 50, we have an example of um, of Nancy Mitford's narrator, Fanny, here, lapsing into the first, I mean, into the present tense. So the, the book as a whole is told in the past tense, which makes sense. But in this case, we have her lapsing into the into the present tense. And, and it's, it's an interesting effect. I almost wish it happened more. But it also gives us, again, this real sense of Fanny as being so immediate. She's very much in the center of all of these things. But then, you know, again, has this nice objectivity. So right uh, after the space break here. This, then, is a ball. This is life, what we have been waiting for all these years. Here we are, and here it is. A ball actually going on now, actually in progress round us. How extraordinary it feels, such unreality like a dream. But alas, so utterly different from what one had imagined and expected, it must be admitted, not a good dream. I mean, that is masterful prose. Again, I wish that there, um, it, it, it's odd to me if we only have like this one instance of, of the present tense and everything else is told in the past tense. Generally, that's a big no-no. I loved how immediate, I wanted there to be kind of a few more instances of this in different places, but it made me realize how effective uh, like the messages here are. I mean, this is, it's such a beautiful evocation and it's funny. This um, this is a good example. We're going to talk later about pathos, but there's also something called bathos, um, which is essentially when you have something that is kind of this sublime idea, you know, when she's like, this is a ball, this is the dream, it's happening right now, it's happening around us. And again, these are all commas when you really should have periods. And then at the end, uh, it must be admitted, not a good dream. So when you have something that feels very sublime and then is brought down to kind of a ridiculous place, that is that is bathos. So bathos kind of being like low humor. It's when something sublime is brought down to this kind of like, you know, like a thump kind of a thing. It's exactly what we have here. And Nancy Mifford's very good at it. Uh, but I love the the not only the immediacy and the objectivity of our narrator here, but also she's just the articulate nature of Nancy slash Fanny. I mean, she's just so good. And uh, I haven't talked talked much about the uh, the television adaptation, but I love the casting. It's such a great adaptation. It's three hours. 
I wish it were longer. It's on the BBC. You can watch it on Amazon Prime. Um, but but it's it's good because the the Fanny in it is she's so expressive and so good. She's not. I, I might have liked just like a tiny bit more snark because I feel like this Fanny, in fact. At one point, you know, they're talking about this ball, in fact, and Fanny says something like, oh, you never know if the Prince of Wales might stop by. You know, she, she's a little bit kind of sassier than, than the television portrayal. But again, um, th this objectivity and this kind of perfect distance that she has and the immediacy and her involvement with the family is also uh, made sort of all the more valuable because she is, in fact, funny and articulate and, and, and really just a, a, a very good narrator. Uh, on 51, across the way, um, so this is this is the uh, arrival of Lord Merlin, and and this is it's a um, th this is when we first are beginning. Well, not first, right from the from the jump, we understand that there's a real sort of a, a, an ocean between Fanny and Linda in terms of their uh, you know their interests and their personalities and their resilience and their education. So this is another example of, of the kind of widening chasm between the two of them. So this is, again, Lord Merlin and his house party arrive, and it's um, it's an incredible scene in the television show. This is when the sexy priest from Fleabag comes in, and it's this incredibly choreographed dance thing that's just unbelievable. Linda was entranced by them and decided then and there that she would become one of these brilliant beings and live in their world, even if it took her a lifetime to accomplish. I did not aspire to this. So this idea of, of um, these brilliant beings. So this is this bright young things. I, I like that the brilliant beings, I, I stumbled over it um, the first time I tried to read this because it was sort of it, 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 the bright young things and these brilliant beings. The bright young things being um, a group of like Evelyn Waugh and Nancy Mitford and a bunch of other people in the 20s in London who were these, um, you know, sort of avant-garde and, and and really sort of pushing against the Georgian and Edwardian and Victorian eras, uh, you know, sort of a roaring twenties kind of kind of uh, post World War One feel. But this idea of of Linda saying, I, you know, she wants to dwell in their world, she wants to be part of their world, and in fact, she will go on to do that, uh, even if it takes a lifetime. And there is again this poignancy. There's this this stretching of time that we keep seeing either backwards or forwards in ways that I think adds a lot of density and a lot in, in a good way, like a lot of ballast and kind of gravity to the book. Um, I also love, you know, you have these kind of longer flowing sentences and then I did not aspire to this. So you have this kind of, um, in fact, I think at one point Davy says that, that, that Fanny is very priggish. You know, you have this kind of, she's a little bit of a goody two shoes, that's an old expression, um, but but it's a beautiful comparison, and it's really lovely too because she and Linda have this really deep and abiding and long term understanding and affection, even when they are such different people. Okay, the last look at the narrator is on page one twenty eight, right up here, kind of toward the top. Oh, and the the reason why I'm reading this is because uh, so when you have this sidekick narrator and and in, there are point, points in The Great Gatsby where y you can you're sort of questioning like how does Nick Carraway know all of this and and sometimes there's kind of a ham-handed attempt on the part of Fitzgerald. Wow. Talk about leveling criticism, really just, you know, calling Fitzgerald out. By the way, those of you who think of The Great Gatsby as like a high school, you know, book right up there with Catcher in the Rye. It is such a phenomenal piece of prose. I mean, it is, it's, it's just an unbelievably 
unbelievable accomplishment, unbelievably well done book. Uh, but there are times where this peripheral first person narrator in the form of Nick Carraway gets a little, uh, you're like, wait, I'm not, I'm not buying it. I'm not buying that Nick knows exactly what's happening with Daisy and, and, and um, Jake Gatsby here. So what we have here is this very careful structuring that Linda, I mean, that Nancy Mitford is doing up on the top of page 128. I must explain that I know everything that now happened to Linda, although I did not see her for another year, because afterwards, as will be shown, we spent a long, quiet time together, during which she told it all to me over and over again. It was her way of reliving happiness. So this ring, it rings so true because, uh, you know, Linda is, Nancy Mitford is obviously an incredible storyteller. It's so funny when she sent the manuscript to her mother, apparently her mother was so worried because she was like, no one's gonna understand these jokes. Like these are all these kind of inside jokes on the part of the family, but they were a great you know, family of storytellers and they're all incredibly original in their, in their words and their, and their anecdotes. And not only did they have a lot of stuff happen to them and they had a lot of adventures, but they also were very good storytellers. So, and, and in fact, later, um, both in the case of Fabrice and in the case of Gaston, um, so the real life Fabrice with Nancy and also Fabrice here with Linda, the thing that he truly loves and that she also loves is, is her storytelling. So people have, um, later people would go, or back before when Nancy Mitford was alive, people talked about her being very much as like a Scheherazade from the, the, the Thousand and One Nights or the, uh, the Arabian, Arabian Nights? God. I can't remember, but this idea of, of a, a storyteller, someone who has to tell stories or else she will be, you know, beheaded or something, but a very skilled storyteller, uh, Linda is, and also Nancy. So this idea of, of the two of them talking and talking and talking and sharing these stories is in fact, it, it rings true. It feels very earned. And again, it's a very carefully, uh, you know, carefully developed narrator because you know, it's a quick little paragraph, and yet it explains to us why we, um, why she knows all of the stuff that she knows, and we, we're not sort of thinking like, wait, how is she knowing what's happening when they're in Spain, that kind of thing. Okay, good. We're going to move on to looking at the prose here with the dialogue. So we're going to look at pages 18 and 19. Um, this is, uh, so the, 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 Dialogue in this book, I mean, it's Fanny's first person voice. So we already have a lot of colloquialisms and it's not some stiff omniscient narrator. We have Fanny, you know, and Linda, and we have a lot of sort of um, young girl and then sort of, you know, more mature woman, uh, a, a lot of that language that rings very true and, and, and feels very, um, you know, particular to these women. But the actual dialogue itself is so incredibly strong. So in part because you have this real sense of, um, of, of like their actual voices, but it also allows for a lot of character development. And it, it, even sometimes, you know, you're not one of the kind of rules from, from MFA writing programs is that you don't want to put new information or important information in dialogue, certainly not exposition in dialogue, because it feels like you're kind of just uh, like creating the dialogue just to get information across. But in this case, she she's kind of breaking a lot of those rules and yet the dialogue is is doing so much work okay so this is when they're all in the hans cupboard and this is 18 over here uh, on page 18. last holidays our great obsession had been childbirth 
which is funny because now the the one when she's 14, when Emily gets engaged, it's, it's then sex, but before it was, it was childbirth. So then across on 19, we got hold of some curious ideas. Jassy said Linda one day scornfully is obsessed, poor thing with sex. Obsessed with sex, said Jassy. There's nobody as obsessed as you, Linda. And then down a little bit. This Christmas Eve, we all packed into the Hans meeting place to hear what Linda had to say. Louisa, Jassy, Bob, Matt, and I. Talk about back to the womb, said Jassy. So the, it's very warm in this Hans cupboard. And so they're all when they're all piling in, it's this idea of back to the womb, which it's funny. Again, this is 1945. The, this story, this part of the story is taking place between the wars. I, it was I was a little bit like, wow, this sounds that sounds very progressive to me. But Jassy, who's the young one who is, you know, as nearly as obsessed with sex as Linda, says, talk about back to the womb. And then Fanny says, poor Sadie, I shouldn't think she'd want all of you back in hers. So then they talk a little more about being in the womb. And then Linda says to Fanny, Fanny, what about you? She's asking if she would like to be back in the womb. I don't think I would, but then I imagine the one I was in wasn't very comfortable at the time, you know? and nobody else has ever been allowed to stay there. Abortions, said Linda with interest. Well, tremendous jumpings and hot baths anyway. How do you know? I once heard Aunt Emily and Aunt Sadie talking about it when I was very little. And afterwards I remembered, Aunt Sadie said, how does she manage it? And Aunt Emily said, skiing or hunting or just jumping off the kitchen table. You are so lucky having wicked parents. So this is, um, it's a little choppy to read that way, but it's this discussion that the girls are having that, I mean, this is a lot of new information and it's really intimate and it's really telling us a lot about not only their intimate interactions with each other and, and the sorts of conversations they're having, but there is this, this kind of gap in knowledge. A lot of this, they don't seem to be understanding, but clearly they know something about abortions. They know something about, you know, how to have a miscarriage or, you know, how you could supposedly bring on a miscarriage. But then, and, and again, this is that kind of, that, that combination of, of something that would have been, um, you know, could have been sad and could have been clunkier in, in less deft hands. And yet here it's, it's funny and, and it tells us a huge amount about the Bolter and it tells us about these other sisters. Um, and then um, we're going to talk, uh, I'm going to talk about it right now. So one of the things that the novel is so good about is like, for example, with the entrenching tool, we have these motifs. So a motif is simply figurative language, a symbol or something like that, that continues throughout a novel. Um, in this case, this idea of you are so lucky having wicked parents, that is, is re it's repeated almost verbatim several different times throughout the novel. And it's cute because not cute. It's great because both of the girls, both Fanny and um, Linda say it to each other. And it's, it's such a, um, it's so exciting to have wicked parents, whether it's some crazy thing uh, that Sadie and Matthew are doing or something that the Bolter or, um, or Fanny's, you know, exciting, like Earl wealthy man uh, who she never sees, who is her father. You know, the, these sort of wicked parents are always off doing things that make the girls' lives much more exciting. So this is these refrains that help kind of weave the story together and, and really underscore the um, some of the main points of what, what uh, Mitford is trying to get across. Okay, uh, and then we are going to move on to talk about pacing. So 
the novel is really incredible in terms of its epic sweep. So, um, you know, Linda is born in 1911. The, the story begins the summer, I mean, the wintertime that Fanny is 14. So, you know, there, it's 1925 or so. And then it goes all the way uh, until the end of the Second World War. So you have um, like this, this kind of broad uh, timeline, you know, you have plenty of novels that happen in 24 hours or even an afternoon that we have, you know, a couple of decades here, but it's handled so deftly that you don't notice the kind of artistry behind it. So the thing that she's doing that's so amazing is you have uh, very specific scenes like this one that we just read where you have, you know, the, the kids are in the Hans cupboard and we're learning these different things about, um, you know, the Bolter and the sisters and how they relate and their preoccupations with sex or reproduction. Um, but but then we have these stretches of time. And, and so instead of um, having kind of like awkward, kind of longer uh, descriptions of big chunks of time, she's able to have these very specific, very satisfying, rich scenes that are then uh, very gracefully bridged by these sentences that we're gonna look at. So uh, let's see, page 39 is the first of them. This is, and, and they often do come logically at the beginning or the end of, of uh, chapters, but I do think this is one of the things that Mitford does so well. So at the beginning of chapter five, this is on page 39. The year which followed Aunt Emily's marriage transformed Linda and me from children, young for our ages, into lounging adolescents waiting for love. So again, she, she's situating us chronologically very deftly. And then on page 60, Again, the beginning of a chapter. This is chapter seven, page 60. What could possibly have induced Linda to marry Anthony Krasig? During the nine years of their life together, people asked this question with irritating regularity. Then a little bit down. He was admittedly very rich, but so were others. And surely the fascinating Linda had only to choose so this is a sort of, because it's another question, this is, you imagine that this is another question that is constantly being posed to poor Fanny. The answer was, of course, that quite simply, she was in love with him. So I, I love the, um, again, the, the way that we have sort of these, these uh, really granular scenes where we have lots of detail and we have lots of like refreshing, interesting dialogue. And then we have these bigger statements, you know, about the Radlets and their emotions or here about like, why did she have that marriage? And what was it about Tony Krasig? And, and then, and, and these explanations are so satisfying and they're so like kind of surprising, you know, like in this case, the answer was, of course, that quite simply, she was in love with him. So it's so sweet. Um, I, I love the idea too of, of, of this kind of doubling down on things. And you might argue that this is her protesting too much, but it's not because in fact, Linda was, you know, very much in love in the beginning with, uh, with uh, Anthony, with Tony Krasig. Okay, we're going to look at 96 for another example of this kind of pacing. So um, then we have right at the top here again of chapter 11. Living in Oxford, engrossed with my husband and young family, I saw less of Linda during the next few years than at any time in her life. This, however, did not affect the intimacy of our relationship, which remained absolute. 
So the sentence then goes on and on and on. But there again, there is this sense of, of, of real intimacy between them and also an explanation here that, that, that time is stretching out. I mean, it's very, it's handy because we're, we're getting this very quick shorthand. We're not dwelling on what family life was like for her. We're just moving very quickly to the next exciting, uh, you know, instance when we're with Linda. Okay, I am going to leave it there. Thank you for tuning in to this Fox page part two of our discussion of Nancy Mitford's The Pursuit of Love. Make sure you tune in to part three so we can look at maternity, humor, the pathos in the novel, and then the close. Thanks for listening.